Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Do the names Joshua Speed, Daisy Suckley, or Eddie Jacobson ring a bell? They're among the men and women who were the close confidants of presidents and played important roles in U.S. history behind the scenes. Gary Ginsburg reveals the largely untold stories of nine of them in his best-selling book, First Friends, The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. It's published by 12 and brings Gary Ginsburg to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be on. Uh, why these nine? Did they have the most interesting stories or are some of the other 37 just less well-known? <laughs> Well, I think it's more the former. Uh, I really really was looking for stories that captured the power of this first friendship. And I wanted to really cover the sweep of U.S. history from our founding up to the present. Um, I would have loved to have done Joe Biden's first friendship with Ted Kaufman, but I had a turn in the book before Hmm. he was elected president. I would have liked to have found a first friend for Donald Trump, but unfortunately I couldn't find one. Um, but Which is part of the story, isn't it? Uh, well, it's part of the preface for sure. Yes, and and um, you know, I did I did spend a couple of weeks really looking hard and having conversations with people close to the Trump administration to determine who that first friend was. But ultimately, I determined that uh, he didn't have a first friend, nor really ever wanted to have a first friend. Well, a part of the story is actually yours. Didn't you first develop an interest in the history of First Friends while you were volunteering for Gary Hart's 1984 presidential campaign against Mondale? You were, what, 20 years old or so then? I was. I was 21 years old. I was a senior in college and was writing for a newspaper. Um, I basically graduated a semester early when I got a call inviting me to join Hart's advanced staff after he won New Hampshire. So I was traveling around the country doing a lot of events as a 21-year-old neophyte in presidential politics. And as I write in my preface, I came to witness the first friendship between Gary Hart and Warren Beatty, the Hollywood star. And I saw you know, the dynamic at play that really fascinated me in, in the sense that Warren Beatty, who had probably more stature and more fame at that point than the candidate himself, would fly in for important campaign events. And he talked to Hart in a way that nobody else could. He would say, stop talking and acting like a politician, Gary. And Hart would be jarred, but he'd listen to him in a way that he wouldn't with any other staffer or aide. And then they would go off and have these late night dinners and bull sessions because they were just so close and so intimate with each other. And um, and I kind of took note of that and thought how interesting a role he was playing in this campaign, both in terms of giving him critical advice on how to kind of campaign on the road, but also gave him this emotional respite that he clearly needed and then I saw that same dynamic at play eight years later. But wait, wait, wait. But Gary Hart actually had two first friends, which uh, he did. is, he is did. different than most of them. Uh, Billy Shore, who was a longtime friend of his and his chief of staff. So you have Warren Beatty, the celebrity, and Billy Shore, the political insider. Yeah, and I really focused more on Warren Beatty because um, – As I developed out the thesis, I really decided not to include staff because I think that staff ultimately has a different dynamic because their job is really dependent on that relationship with the candidate or in in the case of a president, you know, working in that administration. So, yes, Billy Shore did have a genuine friendship that predated the campaign. 
Um, and what was interesting to me watching that dynamic was the role he played on the plane, which I write about, where they could sit for hours in silence or, you know, I think Billy had an ability to read Gary Hart's moods and know when to draw him out, know when he was brooding and give him levity, but also know when he needed that kind of time alone by himself sitting across from him in that front cabin and, uh, and know to leave him alone. And, and it was, and they're still great friends today as I think uh, Warren Beatty is with Gary Hart. Hmm. So these are friendships that were formed in the seventies and have survived till today. Now, Aristotle describes three types of friendships, the ones based on utility, uh, on pleasure, and on the essential character of each of the friends. Do they all apply to the friends that you've written about? I think to varying degrees they do. Um, I think there are some where there was clear utility at play. I think um, Woodrow Wilson's friendship with Colonel House was really one of utility for both men. And I think that it's it's. It's kind of breakup in 1919 reflects the more transactional nature of that first friendship. But others, I think, were indeed that perfect ideal friendship that he writes about in Nicomachean Ethics, which is, you know, that merging of interests and ideals and virtue where each is really rooting for the other and wants only the best for the other. And I think you see that with David Ormsby Gore and John Kennedy, I think you saw it with Daisy Sukley and Franklin Roosevelt, with, I think, uh, Jefferson and Madison. And I think you see it with Clinton and Vernon Jordan at the end of my book, where it's a really deep, abiding and durable friendship based on values and interests. And you say that, I'm quoting, first friends could speak to the leader in a way that no one else could speak the blunt truth. So they were someone that the president would listen to. Do first friends tend to think along the same lines as the president? Do they that, uh, yeah, reinforce think, and uh, and support, act as the, the right hand, uh, maybe be a guide, or or is it something else? Well, I think I think that in the best of circumstances, yes, that's exactly the role of the first friend, and the first friend becomes the first friend, in part, I think, because. There's a mind meld at some point. I mean, think about your first friendships or my own first friendships or our listeners' first friendships. Generally, that's because you share the same values, as I said earlier, but also you have a, a, a very similar mindset. You think about problems the same. You think about the world likely in the same way. So in the case of Ormsby, Gore, and Kennedy, just to illustrate the point, yeah, they may have disagreed, and I write about it at some length, about the the nature of leadership in democracies and had really vigorous debates in pre-war London in 1938. But ultimately, they came around to share a very similar worldview. And that was why Ormsby Gore was able to provide such wise and useful counsel for Kennedy during both the Cuban Missile Crisis and then in the last year of his life in crafting the limited nuclear test ban treaty. And I think you see the same thing at play with Vernon Jordan and, and Bill Clinton. They also kind of had a mind meld where they looked at the world in the same way and they could speak in shorthand with one another. And I certainly think that that was at play with Madison and Jefferson, although they had very different personalities and very different, and different temperaments and different styles. They were very similar in the way they ultimately looked at the creation of the republic and the way in which it was going to be crafted. They had a major disagreement for a couple of years. But by the turn 
But by really by 1791, in the last, say, 25, 30 years of their friendship, it was a genuine mind meld, a really a collaboration of force fields that allowed them to do so much together. Now, you're a lawyer. How did you get into politics? <laughs> uh, I've always been fascinated by uh, the American presidency, and I got involved in politics really from the, I guess, um, the third grade when I watched a play on Lincoln's assassination and just became transfixed by who this guy Abraham Lincoln was and why would someone want to shoot him in such a violent fashion and kill him. Um, and then in 1980, I worked on a, on, um, uh, John Anderson's presidential campaign. I was just kind of come up with his name because it's been so long since I thought of him. And, uh, and it kind of went door to door as a 17-year-old promoting this independent candidate's uh, candidacy for president. And then I was an intern for Jack Kemp, who was my local congressman in 1980 and 1982, until I discovered that I was a Democrat. And then, as I say, I got involved in a really intensive way working on Hart's presidential campaign in 1984, and then I was forever hooked. And while you were working for Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, didn't you help vet potential vice president, vice presidential candidates? Uh, uh, you were assigned to research Al Gore, who was then a senator from Tennessee. You'd worked on his campaign earlier to be the presidential nominee. I did. I'd worked, um, I had taken a leave of absence uh, from the law firm I was supposed to go to to work for Gary Hart's campaign again uh, in 1987. But his campaign, as we all know, blew up over the monkey business and a scandal involving a woman named Donna Rice. So I had a year off and I decided to go work for, for Al Gore. I worked on his campaign for about eight months until it uh, imploded in New York in April of 1988. Uh, and then in 1992, as you say, I was working on Bill Clinton's campaign and was asked to go vet potential vice presidential candidates. And ironically, I was um, given Al Gore to vet. And I spent three months researching the man I worked for um, in a really intensive way. But uh, you, uh, you, you say that's when you met Harry McPherson, who plays a major role in this yes, story. I do. So um so at the end of the vetting process, it really came down to five candidates, one of whom was Al Gore. And so uh, I had already at that point, as I say, uh, accumulated three months worth of research. And the campaign was smart enough to know that I shouldn't be the one doing the final interview of Al Gore and asking the really hard questions since I was you know, basically a mid-level staffer for years. 29 years old. And I was 29 years old. So they brought in an old wise Washington hand named Harry McPherson, who had worked for Lyndon Johnson in the 60s as his speechwriter and his counsel. And I went to see him at his law office in preparation for this final interview. And I open up my dossier and I start to go through, you know, the reams of data that I had accumulated on Gore. And he stops me at one point and he says, I, no, 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 I don't, I don't care about his views on MX missiles siloing. I really want to know one question. Does he have any friends? And I kind of looked up and I said, what are you asking me here? He goes, it's a simple question. Does he have any friends? Because I'm not sure he does. And he said, um, if he, he can't develop or even claim one real relationship, how is he going to lead a nation? Correct. <laughs> that was exactly his words. And he was worried about that because he had watched Lyndon Johnson at work in a play as president. And he had seen the absence of 
of a first friend in his orbit and what he thought were the really destructive effects of that, that there was nobody who could speak to him in those blunt, honest terms and give him counsel that he wasn't getting in his cabinet meetings or in his, you know, daily intelligence briefing sessions or whatever the, whatever the form of, of discussion and debate he was having. And he didn't want that to be the case with Bill Clinton and his presidency. And he didn't want somebody a heartbeat away from becoming president to have that same uh, absence in his life. So he said, I'm going to ask him, I'm going to ask him at uh, our interview, but what do you know about Gore's friendships? And I said, well, I haven't really given it any thought, but when I compare it to the Clinton campaign, and I had worked on the campaign since January, and I had been the head of advance for the Clinton campaign, so I had traveled with him a bit and been around a lot of, you know, his campaign organization for at least six months at that point. And I, I, I said to Harry, look, you know, it's interesting because Clinton was a prodigious collector of friends. They talked so about the friends so, of Bill. Correct. I mean, so much so that there was a, a, an acronym for them, the FOBs, <laughs> the Friends of Bill. And they were famous because in February of 1992, they had essentially rescued him from oblivion when his campaign was imploding over two scandals involving the draft and Jennifer Flowers. And the campaign brass in Arkansas was kind of at a loss to how can they convince the voters of New Hampshire that Bill Clinton was a man of integrity and character. And they came upon the idea of using his best friends, his first friends, as testifiers to the goodness of the man. So they sent 600, they, they signed a letter, 600 of them, that was published in, the, in all the major papers in New Hampshire, basically putting their name to the statement that Bill Clinton's a man you can trust. And then a hundred of them went up to New Hampshire and actually knocked on doors and left um, bags with people whose doors didn't open, saying, which had a videotape in it, and also a letter saying, we know this man and you can trust this man. And I think that Bill Clinton to this day, and he told me in our interview, credits his first friends and their active intervention at that point with basically saving his campaign and electing him president. And I think he's the only president in the history of our country who can say that. So that's, you know, I I made that distinction with Harry. And I think Harry then said, well, who does he have as first friends? And I said, well, he's got two Congress, two friends in Congress, Tom Downey and Norm Dix. And he's got a brother-in-law, Frank Hunger, who he's quite close with. But I can't really think or see any other really close friends and it was striking to me when he asked me that, that, of how different traveling with Gore was than it was traveling with Clinton, where you'd always see friends around um, from Georgetown, from Oxford, from Arkansas. So McPherson was concerned enough. He said, OK, I'm going to ask Gore the question. And so we went to Gore's parents' apartment for this final interview. And sure enough, right at the start, Harry asks Gore the question that he had asked me. He said, Senator, who are your friends? And Gore was jarred by it. He's like, what, Harry, what are you asking me? He said, I just want to know, who are your friends? Do you have any friends, you know, from Carthage, from Nashville, from the military, served as a photographer in Vietnam, from, from Washington? And Gore says, yeah, I got Tom Downey and Norm Dix. And my brother-in-law, Frank Hunger. 
And uh, and Harry had been expecting those names. He said, but anybody else? And uh, Gore says, no, just those three. Repeats the same three names. You know, the rest of the interview went really well. Gore obviously had, you know, the chops to be vice president. He had the right record, the right – he kind of fit the bill. There was no question. And Harry was quite impressed. But he was bothered by this lack of – a first friend outside of politics or his family. And he brought it up with Warren Christopher, but obviously it was discounted. Gore was selected and then went on to serve, you know, quite loyally and quite successfully as vice president for eight years to Bill Clinton. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest, Gary Ginsburg, his latest Book, a bestseller, First Friends, The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents, is published by 12. You open the book with a look at the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. You call it the most consequential friendship in American history. But in other cases, you dismiss relationships between two politicians. Well, they weren't – the reason why I um – I don't dismiss them. I say that they're very unusual. And I point that out both in the Kennedy chapter and the Nixon chapter, where um, both basically said that they couldn't have first friends with politicians because, you know, interests were always shifting. Hmm. And a friend one day was a foe the next. Um, in this case, they had met long before, um, you know, they became presidents. And they were genuine friends. I mean, irrespective of the positions that they held at any one time, they were friends for 50 years. And they shared 1,250 letters between them over those 50 years. And I didn't know that they were such great friends. I knew, obviously, that they they overlapped. Clearly, that they, you know, Madison served in his presidency. But I had no appreciation for the depth of their friendship and how their friendship help form some of the core structures of our democracy today. And so when I started looking at it, I said, well, this is a friendship for the ages. This is a friendship that if I don't know about, it's likely a lot of other just kind of lay, um, you know, historians uh, would find interesting, certainly in the context of the role of first friendships in shaping uh, our nation. They had very different personalities, uh, is the perception that Jefferson was the power player in the relationship, but that Madison kept Jefferson grounded? Well, that's what's so interesting, is that the the general perception is that Jefferson was the dominant player. But I think it's really much more nuanced than that. He was certainly more assertive. He was more domineering. He was six foot two, six foot three, depending on the source. Madison was five foot four. Jefferson although he hated this to orate and very rarely spoke in public, you know, had a, had a very big personality and a very big presence. Madison tended to kind of recede into the, into the woodwork. But I think Madison was just as smart as, as Jefferson was just as cunning, was probably the smarter one politically. And he intervened at a crucial time when Jefferson was tried by the Virginia legislature for abdication of responsibility. He did. And, and a point that I, I make uh, both in the book and I'd make uh, in, when I talk about the book is I think without that intervention, and not only during that trial, he doesn't really intervene. The trial ends up as a, as a big nothing. And 
you know, Jefferson is, is essentially vindicated for his performance as governor. But it was after that. His wife dies. He's depressed about the way in which his governorship ends. And he basically tells Madison, I'm done with politics. I want to just retire to Monticello and just live out my life as an agrarian farmer who has all these other interests. You know, and this was a guy who could really occupy a lot of idle time with some pretty fascinating things because he was such a Renaissance man, right? Interest in everything from agriculture to chemistry to horticulture to architecture. So, you know, no one would have had to worry about Jefferson retiring, but Madison knew that the country needed him. And so he really went to the Continental Congress and said, you got to find a role for Jefferson. And that's how Jefferson ends up in Paris in 1783, where he stays until 1789. And then the same thing happens in 1789. He does not want to come back and serve as Secretary of State to George Washington. He wants to go back to Virginia. And again, it's Madison who impugns um, Washington, his good friend, fellow Virginian, to make him Secretary of State. And against really Jefferson's wishes, he ends up coming back to New York City and serving as Washington's first Secretary uh, of State. Um, And that's when he forms this really powerful collaboration with Madison that forges this force against Hamilton. And also on the, the writing of the Constitution and the drafting of the Bill of Rights. Yeah, and I, I, I skipped over that. But yeah, in 1788, 87, you know, when, when uh, he's in Paris, he starts to send Madison books on failed democracies, European philosophy, European history, the history of republics. And it gives Madison the intellectual grounding to become kind of the foremost thinker and crafter of our constitution. Jefferson has nothing to do with it, right? He's sitting in Paris. Madison is under a gag order. Everybody at that convention is under a gag order. So he can't write to Jefferson about how it's coming together. But he writes him a 17-page letter as soon as the convention breaks up. And he tells Jefferson everything that's in it. And Jefferson immediately spots the fatal flaw in his mind, which is a lack of a Bill of Rights. And he tells Madison, "Uh uh-uh, too much power with the central government. You need to protect the rights of the commoner, because otherwise the rights are going to be trampled. And Madison is, at this point, is very much a, a kind of a federalist, a Hamiltonian, who believes in the power of a central government. He's not quite as monarchical as we find out later in the Washington administration. But at this point, he and Hamilton are really bonded and they end up writing the Federalist Papers together, which defends the lack of a Bill of Rights and defends the Constitution as it exists without one. But ultimately, Madison comes around to his buddy Jefferson's point of view and accepts the need for a Bill of Rights. And the the Constitution is obviously ratified with that Bill of Rights in 1789. So yeah, that friendship does play a very important role in both the construction and then the inclusion, as you say, of the Bill of Rights. Now, we have a lot of presidents to cover. I don't think we're going to get to all of them. But I was just <laughs> curious about some of the ones who didn't make it, the early presidents uh, who were so important, Washington, Monroe, the Adamses. Did they have good first friends or uh, or the, the story's more boring? No, what, no, they did. I just, you know, I wanted to do one first friendship from the rev- revolutionary period. 
And I thought this was the most interesting. There's a great friendship between Henry Knox and George Washington that I could have done. He was his artillery commander during the war. And then they stayed very, very good friends. Fort Knox is named after him. Um, but I just thought that this was this was unique. Well, the, let's of, talk about an even another unique one. Joshua Speed, who was an aspiring politician, became a first friend to Abraham Lincoln. And had they met in their 20s and even shared a bed as roommates for four years? Did that cause did. a lot of rumors? <laughs> I don't think that caused as many rumors while they were sharing the bed as it did later on by historians and others. Um, they, they, yes, they met in 1837 when Lincoln walks into a shop as a new lawyer in Springfield, Illinois. And he says to this shopkeeper, Joshua Speed, he owns it. He says, you got any betting? And Speed says, yeah, but it's $17. Lincoln doesn't have a penny to his name. So um, Speed says, well, listen, I got a bed upstairs. It's a double bed. Go upstairs and check it out. And if you like it, you can stay there. So Lincoln climbs up the staircase, checks it out, comes back down, and he says, Speed, I'm moved. <laughs> he leaves his bags up there. And that begins a four-year cohabitation in the same bed that I do not believe, and the evidence strongly suggests it wasn't, a sexual relationship. Yet they became intimate friends. And, and, and close- Speed helped Lincoln deal with his severe depression. He had bouts of depression. He did. He had very severe bouts of depression, one of which came in 1841 when he heard that Speed was going to go back to his native Kentucky and leave the bed and leave him alone in Springfield at the same time that he had decided to break off his engagement to Mary Todd. So those two, those two events, developments, caused Lincoln to basically threaten to kill himself. And it gets so bad that Speed takes away all of Lincoln's sharp objects as he takes to his bed and speed ministers to him for a full month and makes sure that he gets nursed back to health. And he does. And their friendship, you know, stays very strong. They, they take a trip together to speed's plantation home in Kentucky the next year. And then they basically drift apart for about 12 years. And there's some rift in the friendship over unpaid legal bills. And they take very different views about the institution of slavery. And at some point in the 1850s, about 1854, 1855, they start to write to each other again with some frequency. And I write about that a lot in my chapter where they share their views of it. And this is when Lincoln is kind of working it all out as a Whig turning Republican. And he basically expresses to Speed his disgust at Speed's being a slave owner to at least 20 slaves at certain points during his plantation ownership. And Speed says, hey, it's constitutionally protected, and we have to maintain this institution to keep the union. Lincoln doesn't hold back at all and, and describes you know, just the hard scenes he had seen with Speed and without Speed of slave ownership and says, basically, Speed, you can't keep uh, you know, voting for these candidates who are supporting the institution of slavery. If you think it's it's an immoral it's an immoral institution, which he did, but thought it was necessary to keep the union together. But didn't but, Lincoln invite Speed to join his uh, cabinet with Speed declining? He did, and in 1860, as soon as he's elected, um, within a few weeks, he writes to Speed and says, "Please come see me in Chicago." Speed comes, and the first thing he says when he hops on his bed is, "Speed, I want you in my government." 
despite the fact he didn't vote for him, most likely, despite the fact that he believed in slavery as an institution, he says, I want you and need you in my administration. Kind of a team of rivals motif. And Speed says, no, I can't. I'm too rich, um, but I'll do something better for you. I'll make sure Kentucky stays in the union. And it was a border state at the time. Very important to Lincoln to keep it from seceding. And then he proceeds over the next two years to do everything he can to keep Kentucky from seceding by getting arms to union militianists, by helping, by helping Lincoln message about the war in a way that wouldn't be off-putting to his fellow Kentuckians, by going up to the White House and keeping Lincoln company, particularly over Thanksgiving uh, weekend in 1861. And coining the term first friend. And coining the term first friend. Exactly. So it was really a, a special friendship. Um, and one that has been documented over time. Uh, there was a great book by Charles Strozier. There's only a few books about first friendships um, in presidential literature today. That's This is one of them. Um, and it was part of the really the impetus for me wanting to write the book because I knew how powerful this friendship was to both men and to the country. Probably the... Uh... The oddest friendship in terms of, of uh, lasting fame is the one with Franklin Pierce and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, they seem like unlikely first friends, and we don't have a lot of time before we go to a break, but um, how did that work out? <laughs> Not well. Uh, I mean, it worked out well for the two men in the sense that they had each other, but it was really two friends against the world. Um, I think it's clearly the story. It's the saddest friendship in my book. It's a story of two men deeply loyal to each other for 45 years, as I say, against the world. They were pro-slavery Northerners who refused to bend to the mores of their very progressive mm. communities. I mean, Hawthorne was an author living with you know, the likes of Emerson and Thoreau and Longfellow, you know, really progressive writers. And um, Pierce was from New Hampshire, you know, also a pretty progressive state. And... They, re they paid a steep price in terms of their reputations and their careers by becoming these pro-slavery Northerners. Yet they remained loyal to each other to the end. And as I write it, you know, Pierce takes Hawthorne up because he's about, you know, he's very sick. Hawthorne basically dies in his arms. He opens up the bag wow. that he was carrying and he sees a picture of himself. So it's a story of real loyalty of two men who had really only each other at the end of their lives because they became so unpopular, one as a writer and one as a uh, politician slash failed president. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. The gentleman, the President of the United States. back with Gary Ginsburg, his new book, First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who shaped our presidents, is published by 12. Uh, Daisy Suckley and Franklin Delano, was, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's sixth cousin. Was the fact that she was a relative a factor in their friendship? Uh, and the fact that uh, you would have assumed that Eleanor or his children would have 
been more closer friends than than a sixth cousin. Yeah, I mean, he she was pretty distant. Some some say she was his seventh. I don't think it was a factor. I really don't. Um, I mean, the fact that it was probably romantic for a brief moment in time, as I write about it in 1935, I think suggests that I don't think they really thought of each other as close relatives. They were more, um, you know, they were part of this kind of gilded world in Dutchess County, you know, in this aristocratic world of the Roosevelt's and the Morgenthau's and other, you know, big estates and in Rhinebeck and then in that valley. But um, I don't believe the familial distant relationship really played a role. But she helped him through his struggles with depression. Uh, I wouldn't say that, Leonard. I would say that she helped him through bouts of deep loneliness as president. Um, He was, I guess you could say he was depressed when he got polio and he was down. Um, The word depression hasn't really been necessarily associated with him more as, you know, here's a guy who was vigorous and, you know, the bow of the ball and he's suddenly stricken with polio. And now he's rebuilding his, his body and his spirit in 1921, 1922. And that's when his mother, Roosevelt's domineering mother, Sarah calls Daisy and says, Hey, come over and keep my son company. And that's when the friendship really forms on these verdant laws, lawns in Springwood. And he's lifting himself up um, on the lawns, trying to rebuild his upper body and his arms. And she's just sitting there on the lawn. And they just form this really kind of touching friendship. Two distant cousins, 10 years uh, distant in age. He was 10 years older. And it was that was kind of the foundation for when he becomes president and reaches out to her again in 1933 when he's inaugurated. And that ushers in a 12-year really deep, emotional, at one time physical, I believe, relationship that I think is the antidote to his deep loneliness, particularly in the final three, four years of his presidency when Eleanor is away, his children aren't really at home in the White House. And he's there basically, as he says, I'm either exhibit A or left entirely alone. And when he was left entirely alone, it was Daisy Sukli who was there to give him emotional support, to give him company and companionship. And in in a curious mind, you know, real sympathy and compassion. And and, and she amused him and she entertained him. And he just reveled in her her, uh, presence and wanted her around. So much so that I think, you know, she more than anybody at the end of his life was probably his most constant companion. Um, did any first friends have a strong influence on policy other than FDR's successor's first friend, Eddie Jacobson, uh, uh, a Jewish clothing manufacturer who was first friends with Harry Truman? Uh, yeah. Yes, I would say he, he was influential in getting Truman to recognize the state of Israel in, in 1948. Not only influential, but I would argue crucial, without whom I don't think it's quite possible that Harry Truman would not have recognized the state of Israel and the alliance that these two states have enjoyed since 1948 may not nearly be as durable or as strong as it is today. Um, To your question, though, Leonard, yes, I think that you've had a lot of friendships that had true influence over the presidency, whether it was Madison and Jefferson, obviously, Speed, as I just talked about, Um, Woodrow Wilson, whom we skipped, but his first friend was Colonel House, who was probably the most influential 
friend slash private citizen in the history of our country. And you'll never see that happen again because he amassed so much power without any accountability because he had no job. He had no title. He had no um, confirmation process, no security clearances. And yet for six years, he ran the foreign policy of the United States, you know, outside the glare of any accountability. Um, you also saw it with Ormsby Gore. You saw it, as we're just talking about now, with Eddie Jacobson. And you certainly saw it with Vernon Jordan and Bill Clinton. Jacobson uh, introduced, uh, or wanted anyway, Truman to see Chaim Weitzman. And he says, be like Andrew Jackson, your hero. You know what Jackson would do. You need to do it. That's right. And it was a- an interesting moment and a very fortuitous moment because for at that point, they had known each other for 45 years. They ran a haberdashery together in the early 1920s that succeeded at first and then failed. And they stayed great friends despite this, this door closing. And in those intervening years, Eddie Jacobson never asked or needed anything from Harry Truman. But in March of 1948, he gets a call uh, from New York saying, we need you to go see your best friend, Harry Truman, and get him to see Chaim Weizmann. Chaim Weizmann was a British scientist who was the leading advocate for a Jewish state in 1948. And he was sitting in New York waiting to see Harry Truman. And everybody knew that it was Chaim Weizmann who could convince Harry Truman to kind of break the logjam that was existing in Harry Truman's mind at that point. Because at that time, George Marshall, the most revered member of his cabinet, was dead set against Truman recognizing a Jewish state, as was the State Department. And Harry Truman was just fed up with the whole issue. A lot of rabbis and Zionists had been advocating for it, and he got really frustrated with how, I guess, um, they were just driving him nuts, to put it to put it bluntly. And he had said, I'm just tired of this. Jesus Christ couldn't keep the Jews happy when when uh, he was alive, how am I supposed to keep him happy? He said, I'm just darn tired of the issue. And he was going to punt it and let the UN decide. And as part of that, he wouldn't see Weitzman. So Eddie Jacobson says, well, I'm going to get on a plane and fly across halfway across the country and see my best friend. He walks up the North driveway, walks into the uh, office of Truman's appointment secretary and says, I need to see the president. And the appointment secretary knows Eddie Jacobson, knows that he's his best friend, says, of course you can see here, the president, but one thing, do not bring up Palestine. He does not want to talk about it. So Eddie says, fine, I won't bring it up, walks into the office. And as you say, Leonard, you know, it gets to the point where Truman says, well, what are you doing here? They're making chit-chat. He goes, what are you doing here? You've never asked for anything. Why are you, why did you fly halfway across the country? And he says, you need to see Chaim Weitzman. And Truman gets really exasperated. He starts just berating him. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of the Jews. I'm sick of the issue. I'm not going to see him. I'm not going to do it. Turns his back on him. And at that point, Eddie says it was as close as he ever thought Harry Truman was to being an anti-Semite. And that's when he finds this mini statue of Andrew Jackson. Hmm. And he pulls up this 43 years of friendship and knows exactly the right language to use to convince Harry Truman to do what he knew he needed to do. So he says, as you correctly read in that book, in my book, he says, you loved and adored Andrew Jackson. I have a hero in Chaim Weitzman. 
You know what Andrew Jackson would do in this moment? He wouldn't be perturbed by these pesky Jews that you say are rattling you so much. Basically, man up and do what you know is needs to be done and see him. And Truman turns his back again to him. He he drums his fingers on the desk, and he finally swivels his chair back around, and he says, you win, you bald-headed son of a bee. I'll see him. No, and sure no. enough, a few days later, he sees him. And then 11 minutes after the state of Israel is declared in May of 1948, Harry Truman is the first foreign leader to recognize the independent state of Israel. There aren't uh, a lot of people who would say Andrew Jackson is the ideal role model. But, no, uh, but that enough- is what's so interesting. In that time, though, he was to Democrats. Richard Nixon wasn't known to have many friends except Charles B.B. Rebozo. Why was B.B. Rebozo such a devoted friend, willing to stick with Nixon through the Watergate hearings and even to put himself in legal jeopardy? That's a great question. And, you know, Rebozo never really talked to the press, never really shared um, what made that friendship tick, nor did really Dick Nixon. So as I write in my chapter, it's really left to historians to kind of ponder the magic of this friendship because not unlike um, Madison and Jefferson, not unlike other first friendships, these were two people who were very different. Different politics. Different politics, different personalities. I mean, Nixon was a dark brooding, you know, he preferred to be by himself and in his yellow legal pad. Bibi Rebozo was a Hale Fellow, ebullient, high school graduate, Pan Am Stewart, who liked to have fun, liked to serve people, liked to carouse. And yet it was a really deep and abiding friendship from 1950, 1950, early 1951, until Nixon dies in 1994. They were absolutely bonded as first friends for the entirety of those 44 years. And I think what the, the genius was, was that if if Nixon didn't have B.B. Rebozo, he would have had nobody. And he knew he needed somebody around him so that he wouldn't devolve into the dark, deep recesses of his kind of dark mind where he would, you know, he would brood. And he needed somebody to lift him out. And so... The dynamic that I describe is of two men who often sat for hours in silence, yet Rebozo knew just the right moment to interject and bring Nixon back into the world, back to the surface with the right joke or anecdote or bring him a martini or cook a Cuban steak or take him for a round of golf and to give him that levity and that emotional kind of sense of belonging so that he wasn't just, you know, alone in his own thoughts against the world. And so they, as I say, they had a really, really deep friendship, such that Bibi Rebozo could tell Dick Nixon in 1967, don't run for president again, because he had seen how destructive it was to his family in 1960 and 62. And he says to him, if you lose again, it's going to really, it's going to kill your family. But Nixon runs, as we obviously know, he wins. And then Rebozo can play that same kind of first friend role and speak truth to power. When Nixon says to him, I need you to help me raise money off the books to help me undermine the Graham family with their IPO, to help me come up with dirty tricks to 
to remove Castro from power. But Rebozo doesn't have it in him. And Rebozo falls prey, as so many others around Nixon does, to becoming betters and enablers of his worst instincts. And as I write in my chapter, I think that Rebozo's acceptance of a $100,000 bribe slash campaign contribution slash loan, depending on who was describing it, was what led Nixon ultimately to bug Larry O'Brien's office at the DNC in 1972. And that obviously led to his impeachment and then resignation. So he, in the end of the day, became kind of not only the first friend, but the first enabler to, to, to Nixon's great disadvantage. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate show, Leonard Lopate at large, is Gary Ginsburg. His book, First Friends, The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents, published by 12. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You said uh, earlier that uh, one of your interests in writing this book was uh, the realization that one of the differences of the Trump administration from other presidencies is that Trump seemed to lack close friendships. But you said that his first, his real first friend was his Twitter feed? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm being somewhat mm. jocular about that. I think there's an argument to be made, and this is based on some research and talking to some people close to him, that he was really constitutionally incapable of a first friendship for a variety of reasons. He was deeply independent. I don't think he has a lot of innate empathy, which I think is required for a deep abiding first friendship. And as somebody told me, they were just kind of illustrating this point. He would go up to Camp David and he would take family and friends up there. And then what he would do instead of, recreating or relaxing, having meals, playing golf, whatever it was with friends. He would sit in his cabin all day long and he would just speak to supporters from around the country and just get that affirmation that all was well in the world of Trump, that he was doing a great job. And, you know, I think the conversations that he had at night with people, with good friends like Ike Perlmutter or Phil Ruffin, who I think he spoke to pretty regularly, we're not the kind of first friendship conversations where tell me what's going on in your life. How are you feeling? How, is, how are you coping with, you know, let's say an illness or a downturn in, in, your, in your business fortunes? It was more of how am I doing? It was more of, you know, reassurance of feeding his ego. And um, he didn't have a first friend uh, from all the conversation and I really wanted to find that first friend and I I kind of bandied about a number of potential candidates for that first friendship with people who were in a position to know and the answer came back now the end of the day he doesn't have one so that's where I you know just to shorthand who his first friend would be just like I think the yellow legal pad could have been Nixon's first friend but for BB Rebozo I think it was the adoration of the masses and that constant feeding of that need for reassurance that became Trump's first friend. Now, you write, quote, the deeper I delved into dozens of presidential friendships, the more convinced I became that those presidents who did have first friends were almost always the better for it. And so is the country. But didn't George Bush have many friends? Yes. And, 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 he, and he, he leaves a, a mixed legacy, to, to say the least. 
Yes, and I say that in my preface. I say that having a lot of first friends in no way assures success as president. And George W. Bush is, I think, exhibit A for that very point, which is why I cannot assert that as a thesis for the book. I think the right thesis, to the extent that I, I, I needed a thesis for this book, was what you just wrote, which is those presidents who did have a first friend were usually the better for it, and so was our country. And I think that you see that played out with only one exception, which is Rebozo, and why I'm so distressed in the sense that Rebozo didn't show some of that courage that he showed in 1967 when Nixon started to appeal to him to help him, because he could have been that ballast against Nixon's worst instincts and said, no, Dick, you don't need to do all these nefarious acts to punish enemies. You're in a really great position as president. And Read, reread your inaugural address in 1969 about appealing to our better angels and, you know, live, live and conduct yourself with more integrity. You can do it. But Nixon wasn't capable at the end of the day. Now, both Barack and Michelle Obama have written recently that they decided not to make new friends when they became president and, uh, and first lady because they didn't know what people's agendas were. Would you consider any of the first friends you looked into dangerous or a detriment to the president or American government? No, no. Um, And just going back to Obama for one second, Obama has has really good first friends. Um, And I spoke to one of them, Marty Nesbitt, um, who he writes about extensively in his memoir, A Promised Land. And, you know, there's some great stories to tell about Obama's friends. He's got a great friend in Hawaii who apparently gave a just beautiful toast to him at his 60th birthday. Um, and nobody knew of how close he, he is and, and was with this first friend. I think a lot of people who didn't know Obama from his childhood, and that was 98% of those at the party, um, were really startled at how close a friendship he's maintained with this, this man whose name I don't know. But I, Marty Nesbitt is a great story. Um, and I was hoping to do that story. Marty, I think, was interested, but the president was writing his uh, his own memoir at the time, and I couldn't arrange an interview. So even though he didn't have any new friends as president, and, and Kennedy said the same thing: "I've got plenty of friends; I don't need new ones." Um, they had; they both had great friends that they relied on during their presidencies. Well, President Biden might need a first friend right now with what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, you mentioned Ted Kaufman, a former senator from Delaware and Biden's former chief of staff. Uh, as, as a career politician, what do you think President Biden would be looking for in a first friend? And we have very little time yeah. left. Well, um, just yes, Ted Kaufman is by by all means his first friend of 22 years. Uh, he was a chief of staff for 22 years and his best friend for 50. Yeah, it's funny. I, I kind of looked into that question. Could a first friend have saved Biden? from the mistakes of this Afghan withdrawal. And the reality is, you know, Ted Kaufman is not in a position today sitting in Wilmington, Delaware, to give him that kind of advice because these are really complicated questions. And for somebody who's not involved day to day in the nuances of that, it's impossible. And the presidency has become so complicated that to have a first friend sitting away from you, in this case, Wilmington, Delaware, you can't expect Ted to call him up and say, Joe, do this, do that. Only David Ormsby Gore, the ambassador to 
Britain, who was in and around Washington at that time, could give Kennedy the counsel he needed because he was essentially read in already to what was going on in Cuba were essentially so knowledgeable about nuclear arms that he could be a, a thought partner to him in 1963 in constructing this nuclear arms treaty. But to suggest a first friend could help a complicated question like withdrawing from Afghanistan is asking too much of a first friend today. Gary Ginsburg is a lawyer who's worked for the Clinton administration, was a senior editor and counsel of political magazine George, has worked uh, in executive positions in media and technology at News Corporation, Time Warner, SoftBank. Uh, and uh, his uh, book, the one we've been discussing, First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who shaped our presidents, published by 12, became a bestseller when it was released this, just this past July. And it's been a, a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Leonard. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to hear more, you can access all of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. You can also find links to our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. In the little time I have left, I, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during this difficult time. We are asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to keep the unique in-depth content that we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. WBAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, but that means, quite frankly, that we rely on the support of listeners like you to stay on the air. It's the way this crazy experiment in community radio works. We might not have all the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology here at WBAI, but this station is refreshingly independent, and if you like the sound of no corporate overlords telling us how to do this show, why not come on board and help us keep it going? So please call right now, 212-209-2950, or go to give to WBAI.org and become a member. And our great thanks to all of you uh, who have already contributed. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Dr. Karen J. Greenberg, the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham University School of Law, will discuss her new book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. See you then.